You wouldn't anticipate that it would be reprinted by a giant e-commerce company's <laughs> custom press in the year 2020. You didn't, you didn't predict that? In also, none of the words that you used in that sentence would have meant anything to me. So they wouldn't have made any sense to me two years ago. Well, there were two, you know, I grew up, my first computer was an Atari 400 many years ago. The keyboard wasn't an actual keyboard. It was like a touch screen, like a touch pad. With yeah, those were, I had a Timex Sinclair 2000 or something. Yeah. Timex, it was, it was bad. Yeah. It was membrane keyboard. <laughs> it was a rough scene. And I, I could, we couldn't afford the 800, which actually had keys to type in, but I used to code basic in, in that terrible membrane keyboard. Anyway, there were two moments you could draw the timeline all the way through for me. It's like Atari 400, Commodore 64, into, you know, the IBM clones, and, and I kept building my own machines, and eventually three, 3D cards show up and all that. So I'm watching, like, watching it all happen. I'm a step behind because we just couldn't afford the latest thing. My friend had an Apple II. There were two moments that stood out to me because they had nothing to do with the hardware. They had nothing to do with like the next CPU coming out or the 3D cards showing up. One hmm. was Doom. I had an old machine. It was, in, I think, a 386. And all of a sudden, Doom comes out. And you could just tell that the programmers or programmer or whatever the team was made up of played a bunch of tricks on the hardware to make it feel like your computer was all of a sudden three years into the future. And it was a magical thing to see. And I got so excited. I was like, what? Because it wasn't really 3D Doom. It was doing all kinds of tricks to make it seem like it was actually rendering 3D, but it wasn't. And there was, it was fast as hell for some reason. I just felt like the future. I remember walking into a computer lab and all these business computers were running Doom. Just, it had just taken over. Yeah. They were supposed to be running Excel. And exactly. That, so. And there was one other moment, and then you have to go back, I don't know, maybe eight years or 10 years. or when, Before Doom. Before, before Doom. We're out, of, we're out of chronological order. Correct. And my friend who had more money than I did money. loads up <laughs> Karatika. And I couldn't really even explain it. It was just, it didn't feel like what I was used to seeing. It felt fluid. It, there was an art to it. There was, and, and I was like, whoa, I guess you need an Apple computer with Apple CPU to do this. But I, I wouldn't say that was even the case. I think it was a lot of creative thinking. And this is, and th those, those moments where you sort of hack into the future ahead of the hardware are very like inspiring to me. And so I'm very excited about today's guest. We have on the podcast, Jordan Mechner. Am I pronouncing your name right, Jordan? You did. You even pronounced uh, Karataka right. You know, I thought about Karataka. <laughs> oh, as, as opposed to Karateka. <laughs> I, I say Karateka. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, I've boy, since found out right. that I'm the only person in the world who does. Everybody else pronounces it the way you just did. So we won't say right or wrong, but I know what game you're talking about. Okay, good, good. Um, <laughs> you know, first off, welcome to, to Track Changes. It's, gr it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. We should point out that Jordan kept really careful journals during his time developing games, and Stripe Press 
well known as the publisher of such books as I, I, I mean, no, I, I want to make fun of Stripe Press a little bit, but they actually they publish some amazing stuff, and they have enormous multi-billion-dollar global uh, e-commerce platform. Are uh, producing some really interesting books in tech, tech history, and economics. And so one of the things that they're publishing is Jordan's book, The Making of the Prince of Persia, which is just a very pretty volume. Like you can, you see the journal entries, you see the sketches that were made and, and, it's very cool. and things like that. And so, uh, yeah, Jordan, welcome. And you know what it struck me? It's just, everything is very cinematic in your work. Rich, what is the, like, what's the signature thing? Describe the signature thing and then let's make Jordan explain how it happened. Just speaking from someone that's on the consuming end of it, it, it just, you, you felt like, you know, even though you didn't have a lot of power in your hands at that time, it's just, you know, it's an Apple II looking back now. We've got 6,000 Apple IIs in our pockets now, but... At that time, it felt like you left the computer for a second. You were in this place that it was trying to take you to, from the music to just the motion of the characters in the game. A lot of care was put into what would usually not be put into those aspects of a video game at that time. At that time, you were working with a lot of constraints and whatnot. I want to start with this question, Jordan. Like Usually, you go down this regular path. What compelled you to kind of go in this direction at that time? Well, well it was... Uh... 1978, when I got my first computer, it was an Apple II, a 16K, and at that time, you know, it, it wasn't even floppy disks, it was a cassette deck, and so one of the first games that came with the Apple was Breakout. And so I, mm -hmm. I started programming, you know, like everybody, in BASIC, then sort of gradually started dabbling in machine language. But, you know, my first games were, you know, simple, basic language, low-res games. And there were a couple of games out there that just really blew me away, like they were just on a completely different level. And one that was also available on cassette, I think it was 1979, was Apple Invaders. It was a Space Invaders clone. And it was just as smooth and just as good as uh, the Space Invaders that I was playing at that time in the arcades, you know, put, taking rolls of quarters and blowing through them an afternoon after school. So I didn't have any higher ambition at that point than to be able to program a smooth assembly language high-res game that would feel as professional as Space Invaders. And my first games were, you know, I was literally trying to copy arcade games. I spent about mm -hmm. a year in high school uh, trying to do an Asteroids knockoff for the Apple II. I thought, you know, if somebody did it for Space Invaders, you know, why don't I do it for Asteroids? And I actually did it. And that's sort of how I learned programming was just by banging my head against the wall, making Asteroids for the Apple II. I made a deal with a publisher, Hayden Book Company. I was, excited. I was in high school. I was, uh, you know, I had a publishing contract. I was going to be a published software author. But unfortunately, that was about the time that Atari figured out that this was happening. And they sent out uh, cease and desist lawyers to uh, all of the publishers of computer games that had sprung up sort of under the radar and were selling clones of the successful coin-op games. So that Asteroids never saw the light of day. It was never published. Now, what did you write it in? What programming language? Uh, 6502 assembly language. Mm. That's that's some rough stuff in yeah. there. That's not for well, the just to give you an idea of yeah. how rough. This was before I actually had an assembler, so I used the mini assembler that was built into the Apple II. You might as well be flipping switches at that point, just you know. And you're in high school. I mean, uh, this is so you just sort of got the manuals and just said, all right, let's let's give this a go. I mean, this must have been tedious. You know, you look at the tools and the IDEs people have today. Yeah, the, obviously there was no internet. There weren't a lot of books about how to do this. Uh, I was pretty, you know, pretty much uh, just desperate for any scrap of information I could get buying games, or, or rather pirating games, and then resetting, and then looking at the computer's memory to look at the code of the game and try to figure out how they'd done it, and then sort of reverse engineer. You know, that was a way to learn. 
But one good thing about there being no internet was that, you know, being in high school, you know, we had lots of time. No, that's utterly true. I mean, I think about this a lot and I think a lot like when you're young and there's no social media, you have unbelievable numbers of hours available to you. There was nothing you could do. You would maybe spend like an hour a day. You might talk to your friends on the phone for like 20 minutes yeah. and then you'd need to get off so that like your mom or dad could talk on the phone. That was it. You had to fill the rest of the time. Yeah, remember being bored? And not having a phone oh, yeah. to reach for. It's, uh, you know, you could read uh, the same comic books that you'd already read 50 times. You could play Monopoly. That's the good stuff. All right, so you, you go deep pretty early on. When did your brain go, you know what, I think I could make something almost cinematic appear on this rinky-dink computer screen? Like the real light bulb moment for me was... I was actually a freshman in college at that point, and I had just, I tried to come back from the disappointment of not getting Asteroids published by programming another game, which I called Death Bounce. And that was kind of one step removed from Asteroids. It was, you know, you had a triangular spaceship, and instead of shooting space rocks, you were shooting these brightly colored bouncing balls. It was sort of a cross between Asteroids and Pool, you know, billiards. Not super original, but just original enough, I thought, that it didn't infringe on anyone's copyright. So I sent that, but by now I had a floppy disk drive, you know, I'd moved on from cassette players and I'd also moved on from the mini assembler to an actual assembler. So I had, you know, my variables had names now. <laughs> you weren't just operating yeah, right. it, it, it wasn't <laughs> It wasn't hexadecimal anymore. So I sent this disc to Broderbund Software, my favorite publisher who had published Apple Galaxian most recently. And I got a call back from Doug Carlston, the founder and president of Broderbund. This was a thrilling moment for me. I was in my college dorm room and this was the first contact I'd had from, you know, a heavyweight in the game industry, you know, the real game industry that I aspired to join. Broderbund didn't publish Death Bounce. Doug kind of let me down gently. He said, you know, as an arcade game-ish kind of game, this is, it's very good. It's professionally programmed. It probably would have done really well if you had released it last year, but this was 1982. He said, I'm going to send you our current number one hit, the game that's doing really well. And it was Choplifter. Did you guys play that? Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody, Choplifter. That's Classic. some good stuff. Yep. Choplifter was the aha moment for me because Doug sent it on a floppy disk. He also sent along a a joystick to play it with because this was the first game that you actually couldn't play with a keyboard. You had to have a joystick, which I didn't have. And Choplifter was cinematic. I mean, you're controlling a helicopter, you're flying over the desert, there's a kind of a 3D parallax scrolling, and it has a story. You're trying to rescue these hostages who have been freed and who are running around in the desert, and they can get hurt. If you accidentally drop a bomb on them, you, you've lost somebody and you feel bad. If you fly over their head, they wave to you. And at the end of the game, it doesn't say, okay, congratulations, you got an extra life, keep playing to try to get a high score. It says the end, not game over, the end. And so that was the moment where I was like, whoa, of course, I've been trying to copy the arcade format, which is you have three lives and you can get an extra life by getting this many points. That whole structure is created to get you addicted so that you're putting in quarters until you've spent the whole roll. But on a home computer, it's like the economic model is different. I bought the game. I paid for the game. They're not going to get more quarters out of me. Why don't they give me a complete experience? But Choplifter was the first game I'd seen that actually did that. That really, wow, I finished the game. I got to the end. I'm done. Also, I think, I think at that point you're starting to see, and you saw it in Asteroids, probably the first, one of the first, and, and then in Choplifters, you started to get sort of this, this feeling of physics, of like real world inertia and motion that felt very satisfying at the time. Choplifter, by the way, was amazing in that regard. It was a real helicopter simulation. And I later found yeah. out when I, when I met Danny Gorlin and he told me a bit about the process of making it, that he had earlier versions that 
were much more accurate in terms of helicopter physics. He just had then ended up dialing it way back to make it easy and fun to play. <laughs> right. Right. This happens. I also love how many early games, the narratives end up being about U.S. foreign policy in very strange ways. Like <laughs> Contra also comes, like, as you were describing it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that would you'd really want to make that game in the 80s because that was the story. Okay, so this just blows your mind. You've got a joystick. Somebody who runs your favorite game company has told you, go play this. When do you start sort of writing uh, writing it all down? Are you journaling as a kid? Is this something that starts for you? You know, when, when did that become part of your process? That was actually right about the time I was a freshman in college and I started keeping my journal that year, 1982. You know, I was 17 and I just thought, okay, I'm just gonna try to write down, you know, not every day, but pretty much write down what happens. So I'll have it later. And yeah, it's funny, you do something every day and it becomes a habit and then it's like, you can't shake it. It's like, I still keep a journal today. I've, I've kept a journal in one form or another, you know, with very few breaks ever since. I didn't think I would ever show it to anybody. I hid my journal so that, you know, nobody could find it and read it accidentally. The backstory here, I mean, this, the, the setting is interesting. You're in college now. You're a freshman. You're thinking about creating a cool game in assembly. I got to imagine you're kind of alone here on this, except for this very small you know, population of people who are starting to sniff out that they're, this is where the world is going. I mean, what are you thinking to major in college? Have you, I mean, are you, is college sort of another world as you're thinking about this game? Uh, yeah, I should mention that all of the stuff we're talking about was stuff that I was doing instead of what I was supposed to be doing, which was going to classes and studying and having a social life and things like that. No, I was pretty much the only person I knew who had an Apple II in their dorm room. You know, the tool that we all used, that we all brought to college with us, was a Smith Corona typewriter. And I had one of those as well. And what school are you at at this uh, point? I, I was at Yale. And one of the advantages or disadvantages of a school like Yale is that they, they really have a liberal arts philosophy. That is, freshman year, they really encourage you to not have any idea what you're going to major in, but to just take classes in a variety of subjects, mm -hmm. try to get a well-rounded education. Mm -hmm. I took that at face value. I actually took classes in film, in classical literature, mythology, sociology. I took one computer science course, but only one because I was, it was so much work. I mean, that was real programming. I, mean, I was surrounded by people who were really going to be, you know, software engineers. I thought, okay, I'm already spending all of my spare time programming my Apple II anyway. If I'm doing that for school as well, I, then I'm not going to have any hobbies. So, so I decided right. to, you know, to keep programming as the thing that I did, you know, for myself. But then for my classes, I took other things. And, and that was actually a big influence on you know, the project that uh, came after Death Bounce, which was Karateka. The fact that I had been seeing so many films in my film studies class, studying early silent film, how things like cross-cutting and close-ups, camera movements, all sort of had this vocabulary of film sort of had to be invented. And I realized that computer games were also like, it was sort of a new, it was going to be a new art form, a new medium, and that the grammar hadn't been invented yet. We, I mean, we were in the process of inventing it. So that three lives, extra life, high score, that was a grammar that had already been created for the arcades. And we had sort of borrowed that wholesale for computer games, just as early films, silent films had sort of borrowed the vocabulary of theater, of stage plays. And just as early films, after a while, they sort of moved out of that stagey theatrical setup and started you know, having cameras that moved, close-ups, uh, the kind of rhythm sure. of editing. Uh, yeah. Games were sort of, we were sort of discovering that too. So when I saw Chapitre, I thought, okay, the sky's the limit. And I started over, you know, I, I set aside Death Bounce and I started making a game which 
which became Karateka, but it was also inspired by the films that I was seeing in my film studies class by Japanese woodblock prints. You know, the Mount Fuji in the background was really stolen from Hokusai's you know, views of Mount Fuji. And uh, mm-hmm. just kind of threw all of this in there. And, and of course, a healthy dose of uh, Bruce Lee movies. What I love here too is it's, it's kind of like, here's this blank canvas and no one in the world is taking this canvas as that seriously, except for you and, uh, you know, Broder Four Bunny. other people. <laughs> like a few. Yeah. And you're like, you know, wait, wait a minute. We can actually create something that people will, will really react to, to here. And it, it almost takes like, an 18, 19, 20 year old to do that, right? Because you hadn't internalized a lot of rules. You're just like, I, I think I could make a cinematic game that that feels exciting. Like I miss that motivation in my own life, that, that sense of like, let's do it, let's go. Although I can't imagine it was good for you in terms of getting your work done at Yale. No, I was constantly struggling to not fail out of college. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then when I did catch up on my classes, then I started to fall way behind on my computer game and I'm thinking I would, I'd wait, I've wasted all this time. I'm never going to get it done. And that's mm. one of the fun thing about rereading my journal. Now, all of those ups and downs, that emotional roller coaster is preserved. You created an impossible situation for yourself. <laughs> Jordan, what did your parents think of all this? You're at Yale, you got your Apple II, you're, you're having trouble with classes. Like what's happening there? My parents had a, I guess you could say a kind of a laissez-faire attitude towards uh, child rearing. That is they, they felt that it would all work out. And they pretty much encouraged us. You know, I had a brother and two sisters. They pretty much encouraged us in whatever strange thing we got interested in, figuring as long as we were interested in something and doing something, we'd be okay. So, uh, you know, for me, when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old and spending all my time, you know, drawing comics and trying to make little animated movies, they were fine with that. And then when suddenly I wasn't doing that at all anymore and I was completely obsessed with this Apple II computer programming games, they were fine with that too. So I don't think they actually knew how close I was skating to the edge of failing all my classes and getting kicked out. <laughs> I mean, you know, we would talk about, so how, how's it going? Fine, great. Yeah, I mean, wh- when has an 18, 19, 20 year old boy ever responded in any other way? Things are also, good. Also, it's like, hey mom, dad, um, a software publisher wants to put my game out. <laughs> it's like, go to your room. I mean, let, let's face it. It's yeah. This is not a bad path. It's a lot. <laughs> It's also just a hard, but it's a hard world to explain, right? Yeah. Like there's a, I have a really strong emotional reaction to Choplifter is something that not a lot of people were going to get in that moment. <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, you know, I mean, they're, they're, my parents are from a different generation, but they, they were interested. Like my dad, by the way, he composed the music for Karateka and also for Prince of Persia. Ah, that's great. And, you know, he was born in 1931 in Vienna, Austria. So he had a kind of a classical music education. Obviously the the technology was new, but I think he recognized this as something, you know, that, that at least I was treating it as an art form. Like, you know, I, I was trying to create a kind of a, you know, in his upbringing would have been called a Gesamtkunstwerk, you know, something that combined elements of animation and storytelling and play. And so when I told him that one of the elements, you know, was sound and music, I mean, he understood and, and he sat down at the piano and composed the themes. That's amazing. There is a probably 0.003 three probability that any parent will say that is really cool how about we make music <laughs> that will go over your video game <laughs> you know that i mean that's that's just i mean there's obviously your own capabilities and skill and vision but also i mean frankly fortunate setting and circumstances that that cultivated this so i mean look 
Richard and I being old school nerds, and I mean, one of the things that happened before we started Postlight is I gave Richard a Commodore 64 as a birthday gift. This was about, probably about seven years ago. So it was already a, a real, a little bit of an antique. So our roots are very much here. We could talk about this endlessly, but we should also point out that a couple of these floppy disks grew up to be a vast platform with 20 million Prince of Persia games sold to date. And a movie. A movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, which, you know, I've done, we've, we've all in our lives done lots of interesting things, but very few of them turn into films with, with Jake Gyllenhaal. Right? So this is, <laughs> we, you know, we're excited to talk about the cassette drive, but the reality is, and Jordan, you're very humble, but you created a, a large media franchise not quite in your dorm room reading the, the journals, but still, that really grows. And so sort of here we are today in a world that's slightly made by Prince of Persia. And I'm sort of curious about your vantage point on, you know, games today, because it feels like so many are, are sort of striving to, to do what you did and build that franchise, but almost out of the gate. Is that a good goal? Is that something that people, like, how, what does the world look like from your point of view? I mean, of course, since the Apple II, the steady technological advancement of games, you know, was exponential. I mean, today's AAA games are so far beyond what those 8-bit computers were capable of. But at the same time, we've actually, it's actually now possible again for one person, you know, in their dorm room or in, in their basement to make a game which can have a big impact. And, and we've seen a few of them, you know, mobile as a platform, you know, where s suddenly sim simple games could once again have a huge success. Mm -hmm. The indie scene, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Minecraft is, of course, uh, it's it's an outlier, but that's, you know, it's a very simple game. It didn't take a, a large team or a big budget to make it, you know, but, you know, the impact has been so huge. So it's it's possible, you know, the barrier to entry for anybody who wants to make games has never been lower. There have never been more tools available. Technology's never been as universally accessible. The market has never been bigger. Of course, at the same time, there's, you know, a huge number of games being constantly made and released, so it's a lot harder to sort of rise above the noise. I mean, to release a game when the year that Choplifter was released, everybody knew about it because there were only a you know there were only a few dozen games that came out for the Apple right. II. It was a small market, but it was a small number of games competing for that market. Role play for a sec. If you were to show up in the world, be eighteen, nineteen now, do you think you'd be doing anything like you did? What sense would you make of the world we're in today? Man, well, especially, I mean, we're having this conversation in April 2020 when the world just suddenly doesn't resemble anything that I was hoping or expecting like a month ago, right? right? I mean, the, when the dust clears from the, the crazy, confusing crisis that the whole world is going through right now, a lot of things are going to be different. It's hard to know what. But I would say that one, in terms of, you know, what, what an 18, 19-year-old would be excited by and want to do, at this point, games have been around long enough that not only has a 19-year-old today grown up playing games, but then there are also the games that were made even before that. It's already a creative art form that has a history. You know, much as like when I was in college, that was film. You know, I was uh, excited by the films that were coming out in the, you know, in the 80s, but then there were also films that had been made in the 70s and the 60s and in the 30s and 40s before I was born. So film was, the, was kind of the established medium that I'd grown up with, that I lived and breathed. And then computer games were just a brand new thing. They just appeared suddenly when I was in high school. So, I mean, they hadn't existed when I was 12. So, th so they interested me as something new. You know, so what's new today? It's definitely not computer games, but there's, there's aspects of, you know, of VR, of AR. There's kind of so there's social things 
you know, that can be that are sort of at the intersection of games and social media. That's, I mean, we don't have to go specific. I mean, what you're saying is you'd be you'd be exploring new forms. You'd be finding new constraints and yeah, playing I with think them. that's the nature of like when you're 18, 19 years old, th then you're sort of the right age to take something that's pretty new and then run with it. As, as a dad of a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, I do worry. I mean, you, you mentioned before about how much time you had, but even beyond that, you had these wonderful constraints. There was just wasn't a lot coming at you. So it's not only did you have time, but there wasn't this constant sort of barrage of engagement and entertainment. And, 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 you know, my kids now are working from home uh, and, you know, they have laptops and they drift off uh, to other places and they could just sit there and stare at that thing in a very passive way for very long periods of time. I try to put those constraints in so that they have a sandbox to explore with and to want to be creative with. Like if you, I take the laptop away and I give my daughter paint and paper and she'll paint for three hours, but I, you have to work really hard to create that space. It's hard to create it because they are so accustomed to, you know, just all of that stimuli all the time. I, I think, you know, I feel like escape rooms <laughs> are sort of a, are sort of an antidote to all the shit that's coming at us all the time. It's like, hey, check it out. Like your phone stay outside and you're going to have to get out of the room. And like, whoa, you know what? I'll spend 80 bucks doing that. <laughs> so I think that's my only, you know, I, you know, I fall back into, you know, old man, you know, complaining on the porch a bit here, but that's my only anxiety around this. I think that, you know, that, that there's always that desire to, to sort of scratch that itch, but I just, there's no, not a lot of oxygen in the room. Yeah, I also kind of doubt that escape rooms are going to get marked as essential and survive for the next 18 months. You don't think escape rooms are going to do too well? I don't think that that's going to be where a lot of America's money is going to be going in the world's money. That's fair. Yeah, I, I, I mean, as a, as a parent, you know, you, you try to steer your kids towards things that can be, you know, productive and enriching and so on. But from a certain age, you know, at some point as teenagers, we just, we have these devices and we're it's sort of up to us to figure out how we're going to use them. Uh, I think, you know, the addiction to, to constant entertainment, constant distraction, social media, like as adults too, we have to struggle with that. I mean, I'm always making all kinds of rules for myself. Like I'm not going to check email, you know, before lunch so that I can spend the morning mm. creating rather than reacting mm. or responding. And no, nobody is going to make these structures for us. We kind of have to provide them. So yeah, I mean, there's more distractions than ever. There's more stuff out there sort of competing for our time, for our attention, for our, our dollars, you know, to try to exploit us as consumers. But there's also more outlets for us as creators. What would I have given at age 18 if I could somehow press a button and have this game that I had made or a comic strip that I'd made or whatever be suddenly available to millions of people? And, and, and now everybody has that, like any kid can upload something. And if it's interesting enough, there's no limit to the number of people that could see it. And there's also ways that, you know, that the creator could be compensated for that. When I was making my games on the Apple II, I needed a publisher that would duplicate them onto floppy disks, you know, thousands of copies and put them in Ziploc bags and then later cardboard boxes and distribute them right. to stores where people could walk in and physically buy them. That was a big barrier to entry that, that's gone away. So yeah, it's double-sided. So Look, I mean, you know, we're, we're always wrestling with this stuff. We wrestle with this stuff on the show. And I think everyone alive wrestles with how to, to interact with the enormous 
number of stimuli that are available to us at all times. But you said something important, which is that you have blocked out time for your creative work and you keep working on things. And so what today, you know, what what are you doing with your long and meaningful creative sessions? <laughs> well, like all freelancers, you know, I've got a bunch of projects sort of going in parallel, you know, different sizes and different phases. One thing that I'm working on right now, which I started doing about the time that the Prince of Persia movie came out, and it was kind of a reaction to being part of this giant, you know, Disney, Jerry Bruckheimer three ring circus, you know, that took years and involved thousands of people. But ultimately, I was just sort of one of the cooks in the kitchen throwing, you know, my ingredients into the pot. So after that, I did a graphic novel. It was called Templar, about the Knights Templar. It's sort of a 14th century heist, uh, Ocean's Eleven. Mm-hmm. So it was me and the illustrators, Lewin Pham and Alex Puvillon. There was something just about the intimacy of that creative collaboration where it came out exactly, you know, I wrote it, they illustrated it, and it came out the way that we made it. And, and it was a, you know, 480-page full-color comic book, which was kind, you know, it was kind of epic and, and yet intimate. So I love that. And so now I'm, uh, I'm doing another graphic novel. That will keep a person busy. I, and I, I've noticed, too, you're um, a lot of sketching. You're in, you're in France right now, correct? Yeah, I've been living in France for the last three years. And yeah, sketching is, well, it's something that I did as a kid, but it's kind of, it kind of became my hobby again about 10 years ago. It was actually on the Prince of Persia movie set. I started sort of sketching what was around me in a notebook that I carried around with me, just as kind of a way to, uh, to kind of appreciate and, and also creatively, there's something for me very calming about sketching. You know, it kind of focuses me on the on what's around me in a way that's not judgmental. It's, al- it's almost like meditation. But I kept sketching, and now I'm now I do it a lot. I'm doing the graphic novels as well. I think as a writer, working with real artists, really accomplished illustrators, kind of gave me the desire to get back and start doing that myself, and to try to develop in that direction. So you're you're always making something. That if it sounds like. Yeah, pretty much since the age of two. Uh, since I could hold a crayon, yeah. That's the answer. All you have to do to, to, to build something great is start making things every day from the age of two. So, you know, it's never too, well, it, it's never too late to be two years old and get started. You also have to be good. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Start there. start there. Be good and be two. This is great. So look, there's a question we always, always ask, which is if people want to reach you or get in touch or ask you for cheat codes for Prince of Persia on the... What was the most obscure platform it was released on? I was going to say the Sinclair. I mean, that, that's a UK platform that Oof. I that I yeah. never got to play. Oh, yeah. I've heard about it, but I never, uh, I don't think I ever actually saw one. No, the, the place to go is uh, jordanmechner.com. And that's Great. my website. Great. You know, it's got links to my past projects and, uh, yeah. Also just has some lovely sketches. Like all the things we're talking about are, they're nice and they're great for your eyes. So I I enjoyed, I was getting caught up for this interview and spending some time there. So there you go. We've, We've unlocked it. The secrets of creativity, video games, cinematic things, just all of it. We did it. We nailed it. We got it all in this one podcast. And and I guess I wish I should finish by mentioning the Stripe Press book that's coming out. And that's, uh, as you said at the beginning, that's a chunk of my old journals that I kept from about the time I graduated from college in 1985, the next few years at Bruderbund, developing what became Prince of Persia. It's a hell of a story because it is a time capsule, as well as just kind of a classic narrative of somebody who 
doesn't know exactly what they're doing, but has to keep pushing forward. And so yeah. you, you get a sense of these very slow computers being formed into an industry, and you also get a sense of somebody trying to make a, a place for themselves. So it's a, it's a hell of a read. Very cool. Jordan, thanks so much for joining us. This was, this was really great. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you. So speaking of craft, if you need to build something, maybe not Prince of Persia, but something, you know, maybe a little more enterprisey, Postlight will build you a great platform. We, we love our software, we like making it, and uh, we care deeply about design and engineering and product management. It's uh, even in the middle of a pandemic, we are keeping our focus. So get in touch, hello at postlight.com, and uh, we're glad to hear from you. Reach out. Have a great week, everybody. Have a good week, everyone.